While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. Uh, And as always, this week we are tackling a new book that one of us has read. Um, Sometimes both of us have read the book, but uh, this time only I have read the book. Right, Andrew? Yes. Well, in a given week, like, like neither of us will have read the book for that podcast. Like sometimes one of us will read a book that the other read in high school or at some point in the distant past. And we're just relying on our on our totally insufficient memories of the book to <laughs> guide the discussion. But yes, the the point is that one of us will pick a book, and because we don't want this to be like a book club that's kind of inscrutable to people who haven't themselves read the book, we uh, one of us will always be describing it and talking about it t- to the other person, and the other person will be like an unformed listener. Just like you people out there in Radio Land or Podcast Land at home. Yeah, that's kind of what I was what I was getting at when I asked you that loaded question. Um, <laughs> just the idea that I don't want people to feel alienated if they haven't read the book that is being discussed. Um, but sometimes when before I'm about to read something, I do appreciate if maybe someone has recommended it to me and they've given me some things to think about. Or you know, diving into any any work of art that I don't am not familiar with, um, sometimes that's useful, especially when it's not something that kind of hinges on mystery. You know, um, when simply just talking about it does not spo- does not just spoil your experience per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So without further ado, I read All Quiet on the Western Front this week. Who wrote that one? Eric Maria Remark. Okay. He's a German writer. Okay, and I'm not I'm not really familiar with this book at all. So has that author written anything else of note that you know of or um is this his like main the main thing that he's known for? If you were going to write a biography or write a paper on Mr. Remark, you would have to write about this book. Um, he, from what I understand, he wrote, you know, eight or nine other novels after this book, um, and probably wrote some nonfiction as well. Um, but they were all, for the most part, all concerned with the inhumanity of war, which we'll get to as a primary theme in All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, but he himself served in World War One, and subsequently started writing about his experiences. Um, this book is not meant to be a work of nonfiction. It's, you know, I guess it's you would label it as historical fiction or just like a war novel. Um, but it is certainly drawing on things he experienced and feelings he had afterwards. So what's, like, give me the quick plot synopsis. Like, what's the, what's the thrust of the narrative? So the thrust on the narrative is there's a young gentleman named Paul Balmer. I don't 
don't know my German very well. I don't know if it would be Baumer or not, but Paul Baumer. And he is, I guess, 18 at the start of the novel, maybe 19. And it's his experiences in World War One. So he's in a camp at the very beginning. Um, they, are res- they are on the reserve, which is a little ways back from the front, somewhere in western Germany or eastern France. I'm not quite sure. And that's kind of a recurring theme is they don't really specify places. Um, it's really just they go to the front, you know. Um, they're fighting Frenchmen, so you know that's where the front is. And mm-hmm. then they go to the front a few times, I think twice specifically, then Paul goes on leave, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, I think. And then having gone on leave, his next experience on the front is kind of colored by that experience. And then he ends up injured uh, while on the front for the third time. Spends a little bit of a stay in a war hospital. And then ends back ends up on the front uh, for the very end of the book as well. So I mean, it sounds like he leaves and goes back to the front a few times through through the course mm-hmm. of the story. A, a, a big theme in in like movies and things about the Iraq and Afghanistan wars kind of focuses on the trouble that troops have reintegrating into civilian society after they get back. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, this like drives them back to the you know the front as it were from their from their civilian lives even after they've kind of fulfilled their obligations yeah so is there any sense of of that here or is that more of a modern like sensibility that that comes from that is not a modern sensibility at all if you want if this book was i guess you know this book is talking about a war that is almost 100 years old at this point so we can Mm -hmm. think about that for a second um, the whole middle section of the book is concerned with Paul's stay on leave. So he's been to the front twice. And the way that that works is they have, and this is not, I don't, you know, having never been in the armed forces, having never been shipped off into an a area of conflict, I don't quite know what it's like in modern day. And that's, you know, a whole nother conversation. But there are definite staging areas. Like, they stay at camps where they kind of hang out. They do their thing. And then the first time they go to the front, they're actually not even sent to assault anyone. Their job is to go out and, you know, reestablish barbed wire fences. That's it. Um, And while that's happening, they're being shelled. They're being shot at and stuff happens. The second Mm -hmm. time they go up, they're actually asked to do more of an assault coming out of their trenches. Um, And then he goes on leave. And that is much more of what we would see in kind of contemporary war stories, stuff like The Hurt Locker, um, where he goes home. And there's it's really kind of painful to read because there's there's sections about, you know, how people at 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 home just don't get it like they think that they understand the war better than the soldiers do and there's there's i found myself really guilty reading that and i don't quite know why um just there's one character who specifically says to paul like oh you know yeah that's really i understand what your your opinions are but you only see it from your little you know foothold you don't see the bigger picture and here's what they really need to be doing and like 
there's a really (laughs) great sense in the novel that that is incredibly offensive. (laughs) And I can't imagine talking to a soldier that way today. But, you know, there are plenty of people who would or who do. And we can't help ourselves as civilians having opinions on a war, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially, I think there are some parallels to be had in that, like, at the time, this form of warfare, World War I, was incredibly novel and incredibly devastating in ways that we hadn't seen and had an un- unknown effect on its troops. Well, yeah, I mean, war in the last hundred years has just been in, in a constant state of huge shifts. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you go from, like, the trench warfare of World War One, and then by the end of that, you're kind of getting into tanks and things that break the trenches. Um, World War Two is a lot about, you know, a lot about battleships and naval power and air, you know, air forces and, and bombing and, and stuff like that. And then you move on to like the Vietnam War and, you know, continuing into the present day where you don't really have battle lines and and, you know, there's not territory that's kind of won in a, tradi- a traditional sense. It's all kind of been guerrilla type warfare. Yeah, it up w- till then. So so yeah, like how much of the book kind of is dealing with the fact that like the fact that wars just change so much and that it's constantly evolving and shifting. Like does that come into it at all? It it does. Towards the end of the book, it's funny that you mentioned those tanks actually because they do show up at the end of the book. Um for the first couple times they go to the front, they're fighting the French and it's a lot of hand grenades and really intricate stuff about learning what different artillery shells sound like. It's it's almost dizzying, the amount of detail, which I don't know how you would get that across to a layman. Like, the book does the best job possible, but it, it's almost more about how inconceivable it is to someone who's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then towards the end of the book, when the English and the Americans are on the front that Paul's fighting on, um, and he remarks on how they, are, they aren't as experienced as these German soldiers are, but there's just so dang many of them. And then the tanks show up, and the trenches, which have already been shelled to pieces, can't possibly stand up against these tanks. Um, and so you get this sense towards the end of the book that technology, which has already changed the way the war functions, you know, with different forms of gas and stuff like that, and the different artillery shells that are being fired and the different machine guns that are being used that already they are kind of learning on the job and then something even more devastating comes along and then you're right Mm -hmm. by the next time that we are in this another global conflict the rules are entirely different you know um the warfare in the air is kind of they don't really he only kind of talks about it as a spectator. They take bets on how the pilots will do, you know, when they're when they have time to sit and watch their pilots up in the air. Mm-hmm. Um because they're not really connected to that, but then it's they're not those pilots aren't doing bombing runs like they would be in World War II. You know, planes were not outfitted the same way. Um, right, it's in the battle up there is just not happening at the same scale as the battle on the ground, just because neither side can field that many planes, and and what the planes can do is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that gets driven home is that often they are fighting over a plot of land about as big as a football field, 
And what will happen is one side will get suppressed by artillery fire. So the French will charge the German trenches. The Germans will kind of stop them for a little bit. And then they'll press back. And no one will really gain anything. And that's yeah, basically yeah. how the book goes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's my that's that's the impression that I get of World War One was just for years. It was this, this just this kind of static war where where you're fighting for months over a mile of land and neither side can really make major advancements until technology enables them to. And and that's kind of what's interesting about the perspective of this book. You know, it, it is told in the first person from Paul's perspective, and he has a narrow view on what's happening. You know, he only knows there's like a brief moment where the Kaiser comes and inspects their outfit and then disappears, and they're all like, did that just really happen? Like, who was that guy? <laughs> there, there, There's like a really great line where he says, I thought he would be taller. Like, it's just <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but then when he goes home on leave and he's at this bar and they're all buying him cigars and like, oh, it's so lovely that you're out there fighting for us. Um, and he's saying, well, Paul says to this guy, he's like, I don't think that we're actually going to be able to break through. Like, this is not really possible. This is the way the war is right now. And it's it's a little different than what you think. And this older guy at the bar is just like, yeah, but you only see your little sector and can't have any general survey. You do your duty. You risk your lives. That deserves the highest honor. But first of all, the enemy line must be broken through in Flanders and then rolled up from the top. And it's just like, did you – are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like – and then he goes on to say like, and then, they, and then we should march to Paris. And it's the – incomprehensible nature of what is actually happening which is in stark relief to how people think war functions you know um which is a constant theme throughout this book well i mean that that point of view the point of view of the guy at the you know the civilian at the bar is kind of interesting because from what you're describing it sounds like we actually do get the book from that point of view like we only see what paul is seeing and we don't see the bigger picture and and what is happening well and after he comes back from leave and he's hanging out with his squad mates he has he has a couple squad mates that he it's not quite the right term i guess but comrades or whatever you would call them um that he's with for the for the bulk of the book some of them are former schoolmates that he enlisted with um he gets put in his uh group gets grouped up with them uh when he you know when he joins up um and there's a conversation later in the book where they talk about why they're at war at all it's beginning to wear on them just the the conflict in general and they talk about how like one state has offended another state and so now we are at war and this comes after paul has spent maybe 3 or 4 weeks getting ready post-leave at some other camp where he's watching Russian prisoners every day. And he just kind of remarks on the fact that were it not for our Kaiser being upset at their leader, we would just be normal dudes hanging out. <laughs> you know, it's just the, the at this point in time, war is, it feels not ideological to contrast it with what we were saying earlier about, you know, modern warfare today where at least, you know, for America, we are at war with not a nation, but, you know, cells of people who believe a certain thing, mm -hmm. um, at least purportedly, uh, that at this point in time, it's, you know, France said we are fighting Germany 
because of what happened to this one archduke, you know, um, or what, what was Franz Ferdinand? Was he an archduke? Yes. Okay. Just, I make, believe so. just making sure I got that right. Um, and so they kind of comment on the fact that like their investment in this war is pretty mercurial is not the right word, but it's like, it's kind of luck that they were born here. And so they have to fight those guys over there. And it's really only because they were ordered to do so that they will do it. Yeah. And then, and then to me, and I, and I'm no historian, like I'm not, I haven't, (laughs) (laughs) I've not like exhaustively studied the first world war, but when, you know, what I do know about it feels very unnecessary. Like it it was not a war that was for anything. Mm -hmm. And the war, you know, World War Two that sprung from it that was kind of about something. Or at least became only, about something, yes. Became about something, yeah. I mean, it, it only... Part of the only reason that it existed in the first place was because of stuff that resulted from the First World, World War. Like, it was, this, it was just this huge conflict that killed so many thousands and thousands of people. And, like, for what, for what cause? And you get that kind of at the macro level with you know, why are we at war? Like, you know, mm-hmm. what is our reason for hating this, this other country and the other people who live there? And you get it at the, you know, and and this book seems to set that up well, but you get that at, at, at the micro level too, where you're fighting over land the size of a football field and you're doing trench warfare and you can't really make any major, you know, gains or, or advances. And um, like individual conflicts don't, don't really make a lot of sense either. No, and and one of the things that this book kind of drives home a lot is the relationship between the soldiers and their superiors or their inferiors. Um, They have a schoolmaster who they reference a lot and then compare with their drill sergeant from when they were being trained and who's this guy named Himmelstoss who is this former postmaster. There's a whole big chapter where where Paul kind of recounts their time in basic training and they humiliated him. They, like, ambushed him on a road when he was coming back from town and, like, threw a sack over his head and then, like, whipped him and stuff. Because he was just, like, a terrible guy. So it was, like, kind of, you know, high school-level pranks, except carried out to an extreme. And he remarks later in this the similar section I was citing about the Russians where he says, you know, any officer is more antagonistic to a general foot soldier than a German is to a Russian. Like, there's such a discrete power hierarchy where people can mistreat each other man-to-man that Paul sees as a, sometimes a lot worse than, oh, the French versus the Germans or the Germans versus the Russians. Um, and the idea that you would go to war over these these vague conflicts between countries to him is so mind-boggling when you watch people on a day-to-day basis mistreat each other you know Uh, so does he have like strong opinions about about the war and why it's happening or is he kind of just a you know i'm just i'm just following orders and, and doing my bit for the country kind of guy there's never a doubt that he's going to follow orders which is kind of fascinating um if he's ever not going to follow orders, it's going to be because of the guy who gave him the order, like specifically maybe this, you know, this 
Drill Sergeant Himmelstoss, it's not going to be about, oh, I don't agree with the war. I'm not, I'm going to desert. There's, I think there's one little section about, I believe the man's name was Dietering, who was a former peasant who, uh, who, uh, ran away, like just ran away from the war. And then they found him because he tried to run home, which Paul says is if you're going to run, like why would you run home? You should run to Denmark or something where they won't find you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's never this idea that he doesn't agree with the war, I guess. it's He just kind of accepts it as a duty, but he does remark that it is terrible and that they are a wasted generation because of it. That is another constant theme throughout the book. Um, It crops up even as early as like the 20th page in the book. I'm going to try and find a passage right now where he talks about um, the idea that, oh, here it is. Um, This is page 20 of the book. So Kantarek, who was their like schoolmaster, Kantarek would say that we stood on the threshold of life and so it would seem we had as yet taken no root. The war swept us away. For the others, the older men, it is but an interruption. They are able to think about it. We, however, have been gripped by it and do not know what the end may be. Uh, so this con- And that comes very early in the book. And so the idea is that these young men who are the same service age as the you know, men and women that we enlist into the army today they know nothing but this war. And they were not adults prior to the war, but they will not be the same adults when they leave the war either, should they survive, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And the older generation has kind of had a chance to to live and to to be adults without without this warfare, and there's kind of the possibility that they can go back to this that life after it's done? Yeah, the idea that, oh, the, the kind of romantic notion of like, oh, what are you going to do when you get home? You know, like, oh, you're going to go find your sweetheart and you're going to marry her, or oh, you're fighting for your wife or your kid or whatever. And the point that Paul drives home a lot is this, like, he got into the war before he had any of that. So he's fighting because he was told to fight and because he was told that his generation should, but he doesn't have anything to return to, you know. Um, So it it is, and then he also remarks later in the book that the generation that will come after him will kind of, they'll pick up the pieces from this war, but they won't include him in what they do next because he is too broken from the experience that he can't, you know, help them in the same way. So yeah. the idea that this is a, a lost generation of soldiers is reiterated throughout the book. So Paul is, I mean, obviously Germany did not come out well from <laughs> the First world, world War. So um, when when does the book end? Like, is it is it clear that Germany is on the losing side by the time the war ends? I mean, you imply that the tanks and stuff come out, and that's pretty... That's pretty late stage, but like how how's the fact that Germany lost this war overshadow the the book? Like how do how do events that follow the war hang over the rest of the the rest of the book? That doesn't really there's only a couple lines about it towards the end, and it, it is when the it is in the last two chapters of it, I believe, um, when they start noticing that uh Germany is losing. Um, 
Yeah. How do they notice? They 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 you start seeing them fighting English and Americans, and it's it's kind of what I was referencing earlier. Um, when the tanks start showing up, when more soldiers start showing up than the Germans have, there's lots of talk, kind of about, and this is another thing throughout the book: the very simple things like food and rations and provisions become a huge commodity and become a huge focus of everyday life on the front. And they make constant reference to how the food is better on the in the enemy camp than in the German camp. Like the Germans eat turnips all the time. Turnips prepared in various fashion. Um, and so he talks about the English and the Americans showing up and how much better fed and how much better prepared they are. And then the tanks show up. Um, and uh, Paul lasts until 1918. Um, I think, I don't know if it's October or if it's August. Um, what do you mean he lasts? Just like his tour of duty lasts? Oh, no. Oh, no. I was trying not to spoil the book, but I guess it's a, I guess it's a foregone conclusion <laughs> that Paul... Well, we will, uh, we will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats if necessary. Hey, hey-o. Uh, <laughs> Paul does not make it past October 1918. Um, and he is the last of his group to uh, pass while in service. Um, and he kind of loses them all one by one to various uh, means. And now, does, that, does that happen over the course of the book? Mm-hmm. Or is there kind of a, does it kind of accelerate toward the, toward the end of the book? You're right to point out that there's a bit of an acceleration at the end of the book. Um, there's one guy that passes away really early on. There's one, well... There's one who has died before the book begins, and that kind of sets up how they relate to one another when they pass. And then there's a character whose leg gets amputated pretty early in the book. They make a huge deal about his boots, which kind of also sets up the idea that simple provisions are incredibly important. Um, And he's like talking about who he's going to pass his boots on to, and one of the characters keeps eyeing the boots even when they're trying to make him feel bad and try to, you know, convince him he's not actually going to die, which they all know he is. Um, But then in the latter half of the book, they lose one or two, and then he and his friend Albert Kropp both get injured at the same time, and so they head, you know, they end up in a convalescent home together. Uh, And then I don't think Kropp makes it back. I think... I don't remember if Crop survives the hospital or not. I don't know that that's clear. He does not go back to the front, although Bomber does. And then it's the la- the last straw is that Bomber's friend Cat gets killed in action. Um, and it's kind of a similar to imagine the scene in Forrest Gump where Forrest is carrying Bubba out of the out of the jungle, and it's only once he gets him there that he realizes that the man he's been carrying has not made it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what that's the that's the straw that breaks the camel's back for Paul in terms of having any sort of hope about surviving this conflict as a human being. Um, and then it's really interesting how kind of perfunctorily it ends. Like the very the second to last page is Paul, um, you know, knowing that Cat has has died, and he just talks about how he's very quiet and whether. He he's very alone and he doesn't know if he's going to make it and it kind of just ends in the middle of the page and then on the next page there's like two paragraphs at the bottom of the page 
that are kind of broken from the rest of the format of the book that just say, you know, he fell in October 1918 um, on a day that was so quiet and still on the whole front that the army report confined itself to the single sentence, all quiet on the Western front. Um, and it kind of breaks out. It's the first point in the book where it's not in the first person from Paul's perspective. So obviously it kind of has to break out of that a little bit. Um, I mean, that's that really kind of, it drives home thematically the idea that this war wasn't worth it or mm-hmm. like shouldn't have happened because the main character's death is so inconsequential that it doesn't even merit like the the whatever killed him doesn't even merit a you know a footnote in the in the records of the day. So yes. That's really bleak. <laughs> <laughs> no. And and it's set a it's set against these really kind of entertaining I don't know if entertaining is the right word, but there's a lot of and graphic isn't the right word either, but there's some very blunt discussion about the realities and the simple pleasures of life in such a terrible circumstance. Like there's a couple pages on the outhouses in their camp away from the front and how it's so lovely to like sit in these row of out, these rows of outhouses and smoke cigarettes and chat and like have a good poop. Like it's just, it's kind of, it's really odd and just, and then there's like a whole section later where there's a, a new recruit on the battlefield and like a shell goes off near him and they talk about how, oh, we rec- you know, when they find him dead later, they recognize him because he's not wearing boxers because he had to change his pants. And then, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really, I don't know, there, it's very real, very visceral, I guess, because it's not shying away from these like very simple, but I guess when you're out there, very important details, you know, Um because I'm sure when you're out there, like any anything that anything that seems normal, anything that seems in any way removed from the reality of what you were out there doing must be, you know, it must be sacred. It must be important. Even 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 stuff like, you know, bathroom breaks must seem must must seem important. You know, must it, it, it must seem. It must it must just seem really necessary. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's a really interesting passage after uh, after Paul comes back from leave, and I think it's after he goes to the front that one time, which is really a, a traumatic experience for him because um, it's the first time that he kills someone in hand to hand combat, um, which is very brutally described throughout the book. Just a, a thing that they kind of have to deal with. Yeah, and when and when you get done with this, I kind of want to move on and talk about like battled scenes yeah. i guess oh yeah there's a, are, there's so, a couple yeah. really interesting things to talk about there um but so this is probably this is in the latter fifth of the book i would say um so after they've gone to the front that third time they end up the group ends up guarding this village that has been incredibly bombed out like no one's living there anymore but there's still some structures there and there's also a bunch of resources and mu- and munitions kind of stored there so they have to guard it just in case and they also need to be there, you know, to kind of watch over it or get it out of there should shelling start happen. And so they're living in these, they're living in these abandoned homes, and they're finding food and they're finding beds and trying to have the best time possible. 
and they start they find these pigs and they start cooking them but then the smoke from the chimney attracts shellfire from the enemy because they can see them you know and so then there's this extended sequence where Paul is trying to cook pancakes on the stove while they're being bombed <laughs> and he talks about how like he had got, he had just gotten it down where he could like flip the pancakes up in the air off the pan and then catch them on the other side and then the shells start coming in and he's like well every time a shell comes in I duck down with the pancakes cuz I don't want to lose them cuz I love pancakes and it's just like this idea that they they have to get what they can while they can get it because otherwise why would they live at all you know otherwise they should just walk out there and just accept you know just get shot and die yeah um and it's it's an hot it's both comic and kind of it is it's comic and tragic at the same time it's it's very chagrin worthy and and you know cringe worthy um because you're reading these guys try to take pleasure in whatever they can uh while the worst is happening to them so i mean does does the book find the humor in these situations often or is this kind of an isolated incident it's not isolated, but it's rare that it's like flat out humor. One of the parts that I found the most charming in the book uh, is when Paul and Albert are in the convalescent home. When they are, you know, I think Albert ends up having a leg amputated. Paul had Paul was wounded in an arm and a leg, but neither is too serious to lose either, and he ends up, you know, going back to the front. So they're in this room, and it's pretty devastating for a little while because, you know, guys are coming in, they're dying, they're going out, and there's that uncertainty of where you go if you reach a certain point, and then, you know, the the nuns who are taking care of you kind of just, they don't really talk about where certain guys go, that kind of thing. But then this, <laughs> this soldier comes in who has a pretty nasty, if I recall, a pretty nasty, nasty abdominal wound. He's some sort of cripple. And his wife has saved up enough money to come visit him. And they don't have a lot of money. And so they all decide as a group that when she comes to visit him, they're going to, like, make it so that none of the nuns can come into the room. And they're all going to make a bunch of noise and, like, not pay attention to this guy. This guy, Johan Lewandowski, I think. If I'm saying that right, it's like (laughs) two men stand at the door to forestall the sisters and keep them occupied if they chance to come along. They agree to stand guard for a quarter of an hour or thereabouts. (laughs) And it's basically like they arranged it so this guy could have sex with his wife one last time because they don't know if he's ever going to get to see her ever again. And, you know, you would think that they would do that for any of them if that were possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just really like charming moment where they all just decide, like we're gonna play cards really loud so that no one can hear him having sex with his wife who saved. How do up. you play cards really loud? I don't. <laughs> I have the fours. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what kind of cards they're playing. I don't know if they're playing go fish. <laughs> I don't think they're playing go fish. Um, he. Oh, I don't know what what game this is. Paul says all goes well. I hold a club solo with four jacks, which nearly goes the round. I don't know what that no, means. I got nope. I got nothing. <laughs> um. Oh, he says there is a bit of creaking and rustling. <laughs> I love it. 
It's so good. <laughs> They're so good to each other sometimes. That's like mm-hmm. that's what's kind of wonderful about it. But it is that is few and far between, you know. Yeah. So okay, Paul Paul returns from the front and goes back a few times. Now is this is this because he wants to? Is is it because he is young and able-bodied and he has to it, like what's it's what's it's what his uh is just what's expected of him it's what he's ordered to do what his group is ordered to do what his company that's the word i've been looking for the whole podcast um his company is ordered like the first time they go up it is to repair they're on barbed wire to tail like i said so they go up there and they're supposed to repair it and then you know maybe they have to survive for a little while and then they get out the second time they go, they it time is really fluid. It's not quite explicit how long they're up there, but it's definitely weeks. And they're hanging out in trenches. And then sometimes they get attacked and they have to go over the trenches and go counterattack. Other times they're just kind of holding out, trying to prevent the new recruits from going crazy, that kind of thing. Um, and then the third time they go out, he, I want to say he he is, you know, they're just ordered to go, so they go. Um, they get they get moved around because they're enlisted, kind of thing. They're not officers. Um, that might make a difference if they were officers, uh, but they're enlisted men. So he goes out on a patrol, and that's where he ends up, kind of caught in a shell crater. And then a guy comes in with him, and then he stabs that guy, and that's that's the first guy he kills hand to hand. So so what are the what are the battle scenes like like well, like obviously we have you know we have some hand to hand stuff we have some scenes where they're kind of pinned down by by enemy fire like are there any points in the book where the war is kind of going well for them or for Paul no <laughs> no <laughs> not at all you know it's it's really interesting because it seems like a form of warfare that doesn't even happen now. So it it is kind of foreign in that way to read like, oh, we are hiding here and we're just listening for the different types of shells that are coming our way. And because we've been up here enough being bombed this long, we can tell which ones are which. Like that (laughs) that seems crazy to me. Um, And doesn't seem particularly modern. You know, it, it seems a little older than that. But so the first time is is just pretty pretty rough for them, and I can't remember if it's the first time they go to the front or the second time, they get bombarded when they don't expect to, and they're bombarded. In what I think may have been, or because of the war became a graveyard, and there's this really awful sequence where they end up taking cover. Under a coffin that has been like blown up out of the ground. Um, and under the body of a former soldier or whoever Jeez. it might be. Um, and then that gets echoed a little later in the book when they're going, I, I guess that must have been the first time on the front because when they're going up for the second time, they ride by this schoolhouse and they see all of these bright, shiny new coffins. And then like Chaden, I think remarks to Paul like, Oh, those are for us. And is and there's a really, kind of sarcastic isn't the right word cynical probably the right word that there's a cynical remark about how the organization of the war um is so precise 
when it comes to certain things. The idea that they can't find a way to prevent them from dying on the front in such large numbers, but they can sure as hell have enough coffins ready when they do. <laughs> so, uh, for those listening, this is a video call, and I can see Andrew's face just getting progressively bummed out as I like recall this. everything that is happening in this book. <laughs> so, like, as as is so often the case with war books, and I, I mean, this is true of, like, Slaughterhouse-Five, this is true of a lot of books that are not like nonfiction about the war, but they're like strongly inspired by actual experiences. Yeah. One theme is obviously that war is awful and the worst. (laughs) Can you pull anything else out of the book kind of thematically for me as somebody who hasn't read it? I think one wrinkle on that idea that war is the worst is that is what comes out of the section of, of leave which is we don't know we and i say we as the people who are not going to war like war is terrible great that's a theme in the book i mean not not great but but, okay we've established (laughs) that great that we've established that um (laughs) the idea that not only is it not great but our culture our society is not prepared to deal with that reality and to properly help the men who've been through it is just as bad. Um, part of the the issue when Paul goes home on leave, he re- I don't know if I saved the line. Um, I don't think I did. But he talks about how leave is this terrible interruption because it makes him miss the front because it makes him miss the guys who actually understand what he's been through, right? But it also just kind of breaks his heart sitting around because he knows he's going to have to go back at any second. So he's not actually reintegrating, you know. Uh, It's a little bit different from, like, a veteran coming back from war today and then never having to go again. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think enough of our veterans have that luxury. Uh, But just the idea that we we don't have enough systems in place to either help people come back in or for just the layman, the civilian, to understand what the heck happened out there. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think that that lasts till the present day. Like, it's it's only now that you're really seeing any kind of institutionalized effort to help people who are coming back from war deal with their feelings and reintegrate into society. Like, the few World War II vets that i am like related to who i know who i could talk to about it have just like they just don't talk about it yeah and um i think the the generation that went through like vietnam and korea like they all have kind of their own ways to cope with it but it does not involve like talking it out and then becoming (laughs) you know altogether fully reintegrated parts of society at least not in like the stereotypical representations you know like these people are even the ones who are doing well have stuff like serious stuff to deal with yeah. for the rest of their lives. So yeah, like it's, it's, it's really interesting to, 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 you know, hear you describe this book and, you know, even though the, the technology has changed and the methods of warfare have changed and even the specific things that people bring back with them have changed. Like 
it's all it's all very much in the same vein. Like the the problems that we're dealing with now with people coming back from our current wars is not so different from these wars that were going on a hundred years ago. No, and that was what was so striking about the sections when he is on leave. He he talks about Paul talks about not even wanting to talk to anyone about it because that's almost worse. The idea that your brain helps you forget certain aspects of it on purpose. Otherwise, you would just go crazy. Mm-hmm. And so when you come home and your mom asks you, like, is it terrible out there? You're not going to say yes. Like, that would be the worst. <laughs> but he also doesn't He doesn't know how to... He just wants to sit in silence. Like, he talks about that a lot. Like, because that would be better than... A, being asked to think about the war, or B, being asked to pretend that he's not from the war, you know? Um, yeah, or even, like, talking, even even in, the, even in the cases where it sounds like he does get to talk about the war, it's with people who don't understand, like, who just don't understand what it's like to be there and don't understand the, the import of being a foot soldier in it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that kind of gets to... We didn't really talk about it, why I'm reading the book in the first place. Um, I picked up the book a couple months ago as research for a play I'm working on, which actually, as of this recording, starts in a few weeks, um, which is about World War I veterans. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to read this book was this idea that I think as Americans, we have a really different notion of what happened in World War I specifically, because I don't think it took the same toll on us that World War II did, and even then World War II, like, a lot of other people suffered a lot worse than America. Yeah, like, World War One, we entered late, and and I think the worst of it was kind of over by the time we got into it. Like, And, and it, that sounds like it comes out in this book, too, where you see the Americans kind of show up toward the end, and they're pushing forward without a lot of resistance. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um and kind of that's kind of what I wanted to get. And it was interesting reading it from the German perspective, too, because you don't even know why they're fighting. You never know why. Like, they, there's the couple offhand lines about how one country pissed off another country. And then the characters start to, to draw lines between what a state is and what, uh, you know, capital S state versus lower case, like, country. Just, like, the people from a certain place is different from the state of Germany, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and just that the idea that countries go to war is, is so kind of foreign to these individual men who have their own battles to fight. So, yeah, I was, I'm trying to do research on that just because, like, I don't think I knew m- myself as an American had no idea how bad it could have been, you know? Um, and the idea that, as a lot of the research I've, I've been doing on France in this war is that, there's a couple books that I've been reading about that. They talk about how France as a country itself was maimed in the same way that a that a soldier might lose an arm just because of the, the amount of young men that died in the conflict was so great that the, the crippling effect that it had on a country like that, um, which is just like, that's not what America did. <laughs> you know, America yeah. went into the roaring 20s and things were totally cool until the stock market crashed. Uh, not to say that people didn't perish in that war, and that, that's very callous of me to say so, but it is a different, very different experience. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, but and real quick, but we'll, we should probably wrap up soon. Um, but there's there's a couple really neat passages on the front that talk about just the way that men function almost like animals in terms of reaction and, and instinct that save your life in a way that like you don't deal with on a day to day basis. And um, there's a whole really there's a whole passage where uh, he talks about how. Um, to no man does the earth mean so much as to the soldier, which is the idea that, like, when you are... The idea of cover as completely essential to being alive, and most of it is coming from the very ground beneath you, you know. Uh, And he takes on this really... uh, Eric Remark, the author, does a really good job of kind of slipping in and out of this really casual first person into these kind of florid... You know, here we go, earth with thy folds and hollows and holes into which a man may fling himself and crouch down. O earth, thou grantest us the great resisting urge, uh, surge of new one life. And kind of this flowery, poetic language when Paul is really waxing, you know. Um, but it reminded me of this, this story because he talks about, like, when a man hears a sound that he knows threatens his life and instantly drops to the ground before he even realizes where the sound comes from. It reminded me of a of a time in high school where I was playing volleyball or badminton or something at some kid's birthday or graduation party, and we saw a storm on the horizon, and then all of a sudden, like, a lightning and thunder happened at the exact same time, like, overhead, and I mm-hmm. looked up, and all 20 of us had dropped to the ground. Without, like, anyone saying anything. We were just all on the ground. Um, and it's just interesting how Paul Paul talks a lot about those kind of instincts and how, like, y- the training you get at the parade grounds is nothing compared to the actual practice of being able to live on the front. You become, like, animals, is what he says. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I don't know, impressive... Depressing, I'm not sure. This is, this is the greatest war novel of all time, says the cover of this book. And I don't necessarily doubt that, but it is also the most depressing war novel of all time. Yeah, it's definitely great in the <laughs> in the sense that it like looms large, I guess. Yeah, or that very it's much important, so. but not great in like in the sense where you're like, oh, arrested development is so great. <laughs> Yeah, uh, two. Yeah, and I'll two more quick things before we wrap up. I'm sorry. I'm just keep. I, I was very moved by this. Try book. try and roll these two things up into your wrap up. Great. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, if you were going to read this book, which I do recommend you do at some point when you feel like you can handle it, when you just emotionally recover from this podcast, yeah, and can handle it. Come back. I'm impressed by how all-encompassing the experience of war is in this book in that it moves not only from the front to the camps behind the front to the times in between battle to when they're on leave to when they're in the hospital like it covers everything and it does so logically as as logically as this illogical war can um which actually goes back to our metamorphosis podcast Oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, I will say that the first time... I tried to read this book a couple months ago and I got halfway through and then just got distracted. I had problems 
remembering the main character's name for a good half the book because they so rarely call each other by their names and he just says I all the time that the first time in a while where someone called him Paul, I had no idea who they were talking <laughs> And it was just a weird thing and maybe it's just because I haven't read fiction in the first person in a good long time. That might have been it. Um, and that's probably a topic for another podcast where that might come up. But that was just an odd moment for me where I realized, I was like, oh, wow, that is the guy's name. I totally forgot. <laughs> what kind of, that kind of happens in real life, too, because you can, like, I travel. I've been traveling a bit lately mm-hmm. for my for my job, and, and a big part of that travel is networking. And so you'll meet people, and you'll be hanging out with them. And if you don't, like, make a concerted effort to remember their name or if they never tell you their name, like, you have to figure it out, like, a good couple hours into into hanging around with them because you just don't know what it is. Have you, have you ever wondered if people know what your name is, but you definitely know what their name is? Yes. I hate that feeling. I had one of those today. It was the worst. Yeah, that's, that's bad. <laughs> um, so just, just so you know what our name is, we are Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you have been meaning to read. If you would like to do basically anything, um, look at our current episode, <laughs> our back catalog, uh, our Twitter and Facebook feeds. You can go to our website at OverduePodcast.com. We keep all that stuff safely tucked away up there. Um, you can follow us at Twitter um, at uh, OverduePod. Okay. And if you search for Overdue on Facebook, you will find us up there, up there too. You can tell us how depressing this podcast was by writing us an email at uh, OverduePod at gmail.com. Um, we'll also take Facebook messages and stuff like that. Yeah. And if you go to OverduePodcast.com, our, uh, our website, as, you know, the one that I mentioned before, uh, you can also find links for our RSS feed, which you you can and should subscribe to and our iTunes store. And if you do go and subscribe to us in the iTunes store, we would really appreciate it. If you could review us, uh, rate us, just whatever, whatever level of effort you're willing to expend. And uh, if you're listening and this is what, this is what our seventh. Yeah. I think this is episode seven. Yeah. Um, We are so grateful for, for you, all of you who have stopped by and listened to us so far. Um, if you could recommend us to all of your bookish friends, like or like one bookish friend at least, like no, like let's not let's not do things by halves. Just tell all of your bookish friends. <laughs> okay, let's so not. You know these guys. No half measures. They do this, they do this book podcast, and that they should listen to it because, yeah, anything you can do to help spread us by word of mouth would be much appreciated. I agree. That said, we'll see you next week. 